Let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 24. We've been at school with Abraham. And the lessons that Abraham have been learning have not been lessons of chemistry and physics and maths and Irish and, and English and whatnot, obviously. But he's been learning. His subject has been faith. What is faith? What is it to trust? Who is this God that I am to trust? And this morning we're going to see Abraham in the school of faiths. Well, I suppose he's graduated from it. We've seen him... Uh, we've seen him learn his basic lessons. We've seen him have to reset some of his exams because he's failed the tests of faith and he's had to relearn those lessons. We've seen him sit his longest exam where God promised that he would have a son and 25 years later eventually Isaac is born and there's this you know, this huge, long, waiting test of faith for Abraham. And then we've seen him sit his hardest exam, where Isaac, having been born, grown probably to 13, 14, 15, 16, those sort of teenage years, uh, as as a young man, his father is then commanded to offer him up as a sacrifice. And, And Abraham has to trust God in this moment. And he passes that exam. We can nearly call that his graduation. But that doesn't mean, as it doesn't mean for us that when we leave school, that the lessons that we've learned, we've passed them and that's them finished with, those lessons that we learn are to be put into practice for the rest of life. And in the closing chapters of Abraham's life, we see him living by faith still. And as we come to these uh, closing chapters, we see his faith very much in evidence. Uh, when I was, uh, well, even still, when I was at school, uh, one of my favourite events to watch, I did the high jump, I didn't do sprinting events, but I loved watching the, the 4x100 relay. And I loved, because a lot of my friends did it, and, and I was on a, uh, some of my friends won the All-Ireland uh, schools, senior schools, uh, the year uh, I was a senior athlete. And I remember them watching, and I remember watching them and seeing them setting up their relay. And there's the the handover point, and you have a box inside which you've got to hand over the baton. But before before uh, the incoming runner comes into the box, the runner who's waiting to get the baton will have put a piece of tape on the track, and when he sees his colleague coming in, passing that piece of tape, he'll start to run. So that before he's even got the baton, he's starting to run. So when he gets the baton, he's at full speed. And just at that moment, and it's the crucial moment, the runner who's behind will shout, hand! And he'll stick his hand back and the baton will be put into the hand and the front runner will take off at a great rate of knots uh, down the track for it all to be repeated two more times before they come to the finish line. I always love watching it still uh, on the television and, and seeing just that moment and the, the camera honing in on the changeovers and to see, will the baton be dropped? And usually the Great British team managed to drop the baton, uh, which is slightly comical. Um, but uh, is the baton going to be dropped here? In this changeover, this handing over of faith from Abraham to Isaac, will Abraham keep on believing? Will he hand over the baton? faithfully to Isaac will he display right to the end that God can be trusted and that's what we learn in this chapter 
that Abraham lives by faith right to the end. And we want to see three things. The first is, is the one we're going to spend virtually all our time on, and then we'll, we'll mention the, the closing two points briefly. First of all, faith acts on God's promises. Faith acts on God's promises. These are the last recorded words of Abraham that we have in verses uh, 2 through to 8. He says to his servant, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. What do we see in these final instructions of this old pilgrim? Some might say we see an interfering father. Uh, Surely it should be up to Isaac to find a wife for himself. Uh, Some might say surely there's something racist or bigoted that he won't allow his son to marry the Canaanites. But it's neither of those. What we see is a man determined to hang on to God's promises for himself and for the next generation. The promise is the baton in the relay race, as it were. And Abraham was determined to hand it over safely. And there's three things that we see here about his faith. Three vital things for us today as we enter 2018. There's determined commitment to God's ways. Determined commitment to God's ways. He summons his chief servant. He extracts a promise and he sends him on a mission. 400 miles to the north and to the east uh, to go and get a wife for his son Isaac. Son Isaac by this stage is about 40 years old and uh, he's as yet a bachelor. Now, think about it. it. It would have been financially astute and lucrative. It would have been politically astute and beneficial if Abraham had entered into an alliance with the local Hittite tribes and married his son off to a daughter of a chieftain. Just think of the power base that Abraham would have had and the the people that would have been under his jurisdiction, how he would have set things up for Isaac. That's what kings and chieftains and leaders did. They married their children to, to local chieftains' children so that they could broaden their power base. But no, He sends his servant on an 800 mile round trip to see if he can find a wife from amongst Abraham's own kin. Why? Well, because Abraham had lived among the Canaanites and he had seen their ways. Sodom and Gomorrah weren't an exception to the rule. They were just simply a little further down the line. And I don't even know that I can really say that because when you read about Canaanite religious practices and Canaanite morality. One archaeologist who had been excavating in the Middle East said, when you see the artifacts and you see the skeletons and the ages that the people must have been, the children who were sacrificed, he said, it's a wonder that God didn't come in judgment sooner. Abraham knows the ways of the Canaanites. He knows that they will only pull Isaac down rather than Isaac pull them up. 
And I wonder if we should see a commitment too from Isaac, because it would seem utterly unusual in Bible times for a man of Isaac's age to be unmarried. And it may be that Isaac is steadfastly keeping himself away from the Canaanite woman. He's living away out in the desert. He's not exactly putting himself in a location where he's likely to find a wife from amongst the locals. Abraham then commissions his servant to go and find a wife from people who had already heard God speak and from whom Abraham, or amongst whom Abraham had already been. There's a determined commitment to God's ways by Abraham and by Isaac. And that should come to bring to us a challenge, a specific challenge and a more general challenge. There's first of all the, in the area of marriage specifically. Later on, God is going to command the people of Israel not to marry uh, the, the Canaanite peoples around them, that they're to keep themselves separate. Later on again, God is going to command his people, um, sorry, his New Testament people, that they are not to marry those who aren't believers. Why not? Well, it's because God knows the heartache that comes when someone who says that Jesus comes first enters into a relationship with someone who says Jesus doesn't particularly matter. It's a recipe for heartache. It's a recipe for compromise. It's a recipe for frustration. It's a recipe for dulling down our faith. It's a recipe even for denying our faith. And so here's the application. Be determined to go in God's ways. And if you're looking for a partner, if you're looking for someone to marry, look only for those who give Jesus the priority that Jesus should have. Look only for someone who has put their trust in Jesus. Now you might say, Mark, that's fine for you. You grew up in Northern Ireland. Well, there's a whole lot more Christians than there are here in Donegal. And that's certainly true. But could we say that to Abraham and to Isaac? Well, it's all right for you. There's loads of believers around where you are. No. And yet we see Abraham's, and I do believe Isaac's, determination to put God first, no matter the cost. So a specific application, a general application then as well, that we are to be determined to do things God's way, to do things the right way, no matter the extra cost involved. Abraham sends off the head of his household. He's away for a considerable period of time and he's on this 800-mile round trip. That's taking an important figure out of Abraham's running of his household. But also, it's Abraham's losing all the added benefits that he could have had by entering into an alliance with the Hittites and the Canaanites. No matter what it costs us, no matter what advantages we miss out on, we should do things God's way. It might be in business, might be in filling in forms, it might be something like being honest in our digital lives, um, in, the, in the software we use, in the music we download, in the films we download. Are we acting honestly? It may cost us 
more to do things right. Some of you, I know, it has cost you more to do things right. But that's living by faith. And that's what we're to do. It may mean, for some of our young people, not giving in to peer pressure at school or college or in your group of friends and it costs you their friendship. Do things God's way. Trust Him. Trust Him. We'll see what He does to His people who trust Him. I remember reading about the uh, construction um, company Langs and John Lang was a Christian, the man who who really founded and established Lang's construction company. And he was particular about doing things right. And on one occasion, he ordered the, the taking up of a huge concrete uh, roadway that went into a factory because the concrete was a quarter of an inch thinner than they had specified it would be. And he ordered it all taken up and put down at the right thickness for the sake of a quarter of an inch. And he said, we told them we would give them X amount. And we didn't. So at his own cost, he put it right. That's doing things right. That's doing things God's way, no matter the cost. And that's what we're called to determined commitment to God's ways. Secondly, determined commitment to believing God's promise. The servant anticipates a problem. Uh, in uh, verse uh, 9, verse, sorry, not verse 9, verse 5, the servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Well, she doesn't like the thought of traveling 400 miles to live amongst the Canaanites. Shall I take your son back to the country you came from? Well, what's the priority, Abraham? Is it, is it marriage? And Abraham says, no, it's not marriage. The priority is God's promise. And we see his determined believing of the promise. Determined obedience, determined believing. Look at these next verses from verse 6. Make sure you do not take my son back there. Why? The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land, he brought me out of there. And who spoke to me and promised me He promised me on oath saying, here's the promise, to your offspring I will give this land. Abraham is focused on the promise. He says, don't don't get a wife for my son from here. That'll only drag my son away from God. And don't take my, my son back to there. That'll only drag him away from the place that God has promised. Abraham won't have it. He hangs on to the promise. He will do nothing that risks the promises. And that's what's happening in verse 7. In verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. That's what God said in chapter 12, verse 7, and chapter 13, verse 15. It's as if Abraham, now remember Abraham doesn't have a Bible. Abraham doesn't, I presume, have anything written down. Uh, in terms of the books of Genesis, or any, perhaps stories that have been passed on uh, have, have come to him. But what Abraham does have are the things that he has heard God say. He's heard God speak. And so he's got these promises. And you can imagine God has spoken to him. And he's not going to forget what God has said. And he's been muttering, repeating, 
recalling, rehearsing in his mind over and over again the promises of God. The, the, the promises that God had made to him. He's been going over them and going over them and going over them and they have become ingrained in his mind so much so that he's even prepared to sacrifice Isaac on the basis that God had said it is through Isaac that your offspring had be reckoned and the book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham reasoned on the basis of that promise that despite the fact that he had never seen a resurrection, there had never been a resurrection, that God could raise the dead. So I'm, God has commanded me to kill Isaac. He said that I'll have descendants through Isaac. He hasn't even got married yet. That'll not happen for another 23, 24 years. And the son's another 20 years after that. So although that's a long time in the future, if I'm to obey God, it means the death of Isaac. But if I, God is to keep his promise, that means the resurrection of Isaac. I'm going to trust God's promise. Incredible. Been, it's as if he makes the promises the focus of his thought and makes his actions rooted and grounded in the promise. In chapter 23, he bought land rather than taking Sarah's remains back to be buried in Haran with his people. He buried them in the promised land because it was the promised land. And we saw that he used the same word to describe the land that God had used to describe it to him. I will give it to you as a possession. It's as if every promise that God has made him, he's locked in his mind and he's thought about and gone over and over. And that's what we need to do. We need to take God's promises and rehearse them and repeat them and mutter them over and over to ourselves to sink them into our psyche. To let them shape us so that they shape how we see life. Too often life shapes how we see God. Oh, this has happened to me, therefore God mustn't be in control or kind or good or loving. No, we are to take the promises and let them shape how we see life. There is uncertainty about life, uncertainty about health, uncertainty about Employment, uncertainty about lots of things, but we can be certain about God's promises. Do you need to mutter particular promises over and over to yourself? My grace is sufficient for you. Ah, but I'm not that strong. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Do you need to repeat and rehearse to yourself promises of God's love and forgiveness, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Promises of God's power to sustain. Promises of God's presence to comfort. I will never leave you or forsake you. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Promises of God's power to overturn. But the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. Deuteronomy 25, 6. Promises of God's power to save that no one is too hard for the Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Promises 
of God to be a God to us and to our children after us. Promise made to Abraham. Promises that God's wisdom is at work in working out everything that happens to us and that he does all things well. Do you need to take promises? There may be there's particular promises that you need to take. Will you take them and make it your goal to rehearse, repeat and cling to them throughout this year ahead? That's what faith does. Faith is determined to believe the promises. And then thirdly, we see in Abraham a determined trust in God's provision. A determined trust in God's provision. There's still more faith on view. Abraham con- or the servant continues. If the woman is unwilling, or sorry, it's Abraham continues. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, at this stage you might expect and say, well, make her come. Well, no, that's not what we see here. No misogynistic patriarch here. He says to his servant, you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. Now, it doesn't seem like much, but this is quite a change for Abraham. This is Abraham who has tried repeatedly to shortcut and short-circuit and to find his own solution whenever he runs into problems. Shortcuts have been taken when he should have trusted God. Shortcut, shortcut number one was that he went to Egypt when God had uh, called him to live in Canaan and a famine came. Instead of trusting God to provide, he packed his bags and went to Egypt. Shortcut two was that when in Egypt he found himself concerned that Pharaoh might take a fancy to Sarah and execute Abraham so that he could get his hands on Sarah, he said, just lie about it. Tell them, well, it's half true. Tell them you're my sister instead of my wife. She was also his half-sister. Shortcut number three. Instead of trusting God to provide a son through Sarah, they come up together, Sarah and Abraham, with this scheme of sleeping with the maid, Hagar. Shortcut number four. Another lie that Sarah's his sister and not his wife. This is his track record of trying to weasel away to his own solution to a problem that God has brought into his life to test and strengthen his faith. Abraham finds his answer. But not now. Not now. See his progress. Under the pressure of seeing no descendants through his 40-year-old bachelor son, Abraham says, if she doesn't want to marry him, leave it. Leave it. No more trying to force a solution. No more shortcuts. No more trying to twist God's arm. God had promised there'd be descendants. Abraham has done his best. As far as it depended on him, he has been obedient to God. And rather than risk being disobedient in any way, he's leaving it to God to provide. God will provide a determined trust in God's provision. He had already said in Genesis 22, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. He had said earlier in the chapter when Isaac had said to him, Where's the lamb? He said, God himself will provide a lamb. This is where Abraham's journey with God has brought him. It's brought him to the point 
where he says, look, whatever happens, one thing I know, I can trust God to provide. One thing you can know is that you can trust God to provide what's best and what's right. Wait for it. Don't try to take shortcuts to get there. God is faithful. Therefore, obey him and trust him. If you're caught in circumstances and you don't know what way they'll turn out, you obey and leave the consequences in God's hands. If you're in circumstances where you can see a solution that you know isn't quite right, but it seems the only option to take and you know that it's going against God in some shape or form, leave it. Don't take it. Trust God's providence. And what does Abraham find out? He finds out that when you hang on to God's promises, when you act in God's promises, and when you trust God's providence, God doesn't let him down. In chapter, in the rest of the chapter, we see this second point. I want to mention it just briefly. Faith sees God's providence at work. Faith sees God's providence at work. That's what happens in verses 10 to 61. And you get a sense of the amazement of the servant and Moses the writer. And Moses and the servant want us to be captivated by the wonder of what God does to provide here. Now, it's not an explosive, miraculous provision. You know, a wife doesn't appear floating down out of heaven from the clouds and appears in front of Isaac like that, no. But in a quiet, ordinary way, faith saw God's providence at work. And you you sense the servant's wonder at this. As he... And you sense Moses' wonder because Moses, when he's writing this, and you'll notice that the chapter was really long because it tells the story twice. You've got the account of it happening as it happens. And then the servant repeats it all. Not quite word for word, but more or less word for word to the family. And Moses records it all. And you get a sense even in the servant's recounting of his amazement that God has provided for Isaac and for Abraham. You get it in his prayer. Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. You have a God who doesn't abandon his kindness and faithfulness. And look at the way the the providence of God works out. The, The servant goes to the town and he prays, Lord, would you send a woman to the well, and he comes up with a, quite a wise test as he thinks about who does he want as a wife for Isaac? How does he assess the caliber of woman who might marry his master's son? Now his master has this one son who's going to be heir. He's worth a complete fortune. He's 40 years old. You could see the gold diggers lining up with the pound signs or the euro signs, the shekel signs in their eyes going, happy days, rich single son. Hmm, bachelor all of him the servant thinks no no I want a woman of substance and quality and so he prays God would you send a woman out who will show me the qualities of hospitality and generosity and care that's what it is he says would you send a woman who will provide water for me a complete stranger that's fairly straightforward and obvious in a sense but also 
that she would water his camels. Now you need to know that a camel drinks somewhere in the region of 100 litres of water. There are 10 camels. That's 1,000 litres of water. That's a metric tonne of water. And we read that Rebecca empties her jar into the trough, having given him something, and runs back to the spring, down to the spring, and comes up out of the spring, and she fills. The the archaeologists say that a a jug would have held about 10 litres. A hundred trips to the spring, shifting a tonne of water. What an incredible provision. There's Abraham away off in Canaan, Isaac away off in the Negev. They haven't a clue what's happening, but God is at work in the most incredible way, but the most ordinary way. And then, and then the servant says to her, by the way, and where do you live? What's your family? And she says, well, I'm, 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 the, son, I'm the daughter of, um, of Bethuel, the son of Nahor. It's the right family. What are the odds of that? That there's the, the first person out of the town is a person from the right family who's got the right heart. Incredible. And Moses says, I want to make sure you see the astonishing way that God provides. And so he tells it all again to us. And what we learn from this, we could learn lots of things about guidance and I've put some of the things in the notes there. We're not, we're not even going to mention those uh, really. We can talk about those some other time. But the key thing to note here is that God provides. God's providence is at work. Here is God working behind the scenes. And that's the key thing to note, that God did lead and God did guide and God did provide when Abraham and the servant sought to obey him. And that's what we will see as we seek to obey God and trust his promises and trust his sovereign overruling that we are not wasting our time obeying God. We are not wasting our time hanging on to the promises. We are not wasting our time putting God first. He will provide and you might think, I can't see how he's going to provide. Did you think that Isaac or Abraham in their wildest dreams ever thought that it would work out this way? No, but it did. Because God is a God who provides. Those who honour him, he will honour. And here we see that you can trust God to provide for you as you seek to obey him. When the way isn't clear, you obey and trust. That's your part. His part is to provide. And then just to note, very quickly in closing, there's something wonderfully tender about what God provides. Faith finds God's provision. And it's a tender provision. It would seem that Isaac is really reeling from his mother's death. That he is immersed in grief. We see that in the last verse. So she became his wife and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. We see the chapter starting with Abraham wondering how Isaac will get a wife. He looks to God to provide. And it finishes not only with God providing a wife, but providing help and comfort, the very help and comfort that Isaac needed. God's provision was just right.
There we see God's tender care. And what do you think Isaac thought when he heard the servant's story? Because we're told in verse 66 that the servant told Isaac all that he had done. Now think Isaac marveled at God's provision and at God's tender care and God's love as it happened in the unfolding of the circumstances. Friends, that's what we'll see as we trust God. We'll see God's care. We'll see God's provision. We'll see God's love for his people. So finish well. That's what Abraham does. Hang on to God's promises. Rehearse them in your mind. Argue them back to God. Lord, you said. You said you would provide. You're faithful and I trust you. And keep doing what you should be doing rather than trying to engineer what you want. Trust him because he cares and he's wise and he's good. And because we live on this side of the cross, we can look at God with clearer vision than Abraham had. And we could say that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's given us his son. It's unthinkable that he'll fall short. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Will we keep on believing? Well, we have a God who gives us every reason to keep on trusting him. And a God who says that it's always worthwhile to hang on to his promises. Amen.